over the last couple of days turned my radio off and tried to keep TV off and tried to be focusing on just hearing from God. My prayer this morning has been that God would be here. I'm glad you're here, but I'm even more glad that God is here. So I want to take just a minute and thank the Lord for his presence. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in the silence of this moment, you are here in our midst. You have answered our prayers with your presence. How awesome you are. I sense your closeness, Lord. Lord, as a nation and as a people, we desperately need to hear from you. Father, we have grown up to think that life is about us. But God, we're so insignificant. There's no one there is nothing like you. You're the creator of the universe. You're the creator of that little baby in a womb. There is nothing that exists that, God, you didn't call into existence. We humble ourselves before you today. We ask that you forgive us. We ask that you let us see you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would also show us ourselves. Because there is such a contrast between you and us. You are holy and righteous, the sovereign God of the universe. And God, we're sinners. We need you to touch us today. Lord, we ask you to change us and shape us into the image of your Son. Father, I'm asking you to speak through me today the words that we all need to hear. Thank you so much for gathering us in this place. And thank you, Lord, for being here. In the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I know that many of you weren't here last week, and if you were, you heard me say this, that without repentance there's no conversion, and where there's no conversion there is no salvation, and if there's no salvation then there's no eternal life in heaven with God. It is very, very important that those things are a part of our life. Without repentance, there's no conversion. Without conversion, there is no salvation. And where there's no salvation, there's no living with God in heaven forever and ever and ever. I would say to you that if you're living your life with little or no change, then there's a pretty good chance that the religious experience you've thus had or had thus far has not changed your eternal destiny. Let me say that again this way. If you're just the same old person that you've always been, 
then you're probably not saved. I, I, I take you back to the, that day when thousands gathered in Jerusalem to hear the very first Christian message that was ever preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. The people there that day as they heard the word of God, they were deeply convicted in their spirit and they asked, okay, what should we do now? Now that we're here and we're convicted, we've heard God's word, what should we do? What do we need to do to be right with God? And Peter said it very clearly in Acts chapter two, verse 38. He said, each of you must turn from your sin and turn to God and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's clear, he said, to be right with God, you must repent of your sins and turn to God by trusting Jesus Christ to make things right between you and God. He said that and many heard him. In fact, 3,000 people responded that day. They accepted the words of Peter and they accepted the Lord. They repented of their sin and they demonstrated their faith in Jesus Christ by allowing the apostles to baptize them. And the Bible's clear. Those that were saved all received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Lord. Now you think about this. Wouldn't it be an awesome thing if we could go back to that day and somehow capture everything that happened in that moment to put on video the sermon that was preached and, and the conviction of the people and then those 3,000 people that were baptized to be able to watch all of that on the big screen. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? I think it would be. There were a lot of things in the Old Testament and, and in that period early in the life of the church like what happened on Pentecost that I'd really love to watch on video. A lot of things. I think even to have an audio message of it would be an awesome thing. I can only imagine that there was a lot of rejoicing going on on that day. You know, the Bible says when, when a lost soul gets saved, heaven rejoices. You can imagine 3,000 in one day. I'm sure that the earth was rejoicing. I'm sure that the angels in heaven were rejoicing. It was an awesome time. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to go back and pull that up on the big screen. We don't have that ability. They didn't have the technology in that day to be able to record that kind of special event. But we do have in Scripture Peter's sermon. And praise God we have that. We know what he said. We even have a brief account of what John the Baptist was preaching uh, Matthew gives us a, a brief synopsis of that message. And Dr. Luke gives us a little more. If you look into Luke's gospel, you'll find that there's a little more detail, but it's the same message. Now, Luke can, Luke's record contains some important things. There is a clear call for every new believer to repent and be baptized. There's a challenge for the believers to, to experience an inner peace and, and an inner change of mind and heart. There's an expectation that every new believer should follow that decision of trusting the Lord with a public act of, of, that symbolizes the change that's happened. And we know that to be baptism. There's an even more important expectation that Luke gives us here that's, that's in John's message, that there was, a, there was a, a need for a new lifestyle to be demonstrated uh, that demonstrates that change. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians. One of the first verses I ever memorized, 2 Corinthians 
Paul writes what this means is that those who become Christians become new people, new persons. And they are not the same anymore. For the old life is gone and a new life has begun. Do you see the picture? All of this newness of life is from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. There's a new life when you take on Jesus. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that that certainly doesn't mean you become perfect. It doesn't mean you become sinless. There's no way you can be. If you think you are, you're only deceiving yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're living in fantasy land. There's no way that that could happen. All of us, as long as we live in the flesh, we will have a sin nature. It's there. And you will sin. But as a Christian, you should sin less and less and less and less. The longer that you walk with Jesus, the more you should look like him and the more you should think like him. And guys, when you, when you marry that up with the act of baptism, it, it symbolizes that. It's a demonstration of that reality. Think about it, going under the water. You're taking that old person, you're putting it to death. And when you come out of that, that water, you come up a new person in Christ. Now, very much like that, we find that that's what John was doing with his baptism. He was preaching encouraging people to prepare their hearts to meet King Jesus. John MacArthur said of, of John's preaching, he says, John's preaching was simple and his message was limited to that which was most essential, but he faithfully fulfilled his singular calling as the herald of God's coming great king. He performed his ministry with boldness and courage and power and single-minded devotion that caused the king to say of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In our scripture text this morning that we're going to look at in the book of Matthew, we're going to find that the author continues to tell us John's amazing story by focusing on four interesting elements of this divine encounter that took place down by the Jordan River. Now, you know, John was there preaching pretty much every day, I'm sure. He never knew who was coming to hear his message. He never knew who was going to be in the crowd. But you know what God always did? God always does. God always knows who's coming. I, I remember preaching uh, down in North Carolina where I pastored for a number of years. And I remember it was about 1045 one morning. I had just a short period of time left in, in my sermon delivery. I was about to finish up when this man and his wife and kids walked in the back door. They came in and they were seated. Um, he had his time mixed up. Instead of getting there for the beginning of the service, he got there at the end of the service. So he only heard about the last 10 minutes of the message. And when I finished, I gave the normal, the usual invitation and I was shocked. This man stood up. He came forward. He came right down to me. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, how did you know I was coming here this morning? Uh, he said, everything you said, you said right to me. It's like there's nobody else here today. You knew where I was going to be. And I said, look, guy, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> how could I know you were coming? Because I don't know who you are. I don't know. But you know what? And I said this to him. God knew you were coming. God knew. God always knows. In fact, God is the one who arranges these divine appointments. 
He arranges them. He makes them happen. I don't know that you've thought about this a whole lot, but you're here today because God wants you here. You might have thought, no, I got up this morning and I made up my mind. No, God helped you make up your mind. God knows what you need. He knows the condition of your heart. He knows whether you're lost or saved. He wants you to know him. He's here to help you know him. He always knows who's in, he always knows who's in the crowd. Every time he knows. He knows you by name. He knows you're here today. I promise you that. He does. In Matthew chapter 3, we find in verse 7, that, and I want you to just notice the crowd that came to hear John preach. Uh, we're, we're told who the crowd is. He said, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were, they were the religious leaders of Israel. Now, why exactly they came to hear John preach is debatable, and we're not going to get into that. It's hard to imagine why these self-righteous and, and very proud men would want John to baptize them. Most likely they just came to check John out to find out whether he was a real prophet or not. It's been said that if John happened to be a real prophet, then perhaps they could gain his approval and parade the, the pretense of repentant spirituality and capitalize on or even take over the moment in the same way that many religious opportunists still do today. We're not told a whole lot about them in Scripture. We don't know why they came, but we do know this because of absence of, of knowledge here. I would say to you that none of them repented that day. They didn't confess their sin. They didn't change. They left the way they came, and John didn't baptize them. In fact, I think it's pretty obvious that John believed that they were up to something no good in their coming. So we find in the latter part of verse 7, John speaks some words that, that kind of led to this confrontation. Look at what he said. But it says, it says, when he saw the many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. Ooh, that'd be like me picking on you and calling you out by name and saying something ugly to you on Sunday morning. You wouldn't come back. And I probably wouldn't have a job next Sunday. He denounced them. He said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming judgment? Calls them a bunch of snakes. That's pretty low, literally. You'll get it. Some of you are there this morning. That extra hour of sleep helped you last night, didn't it? Amen. You know, uh, these desert vipers, they appear to be kind of harmless. Most snakes do. But they were really quite venomous and deadly. A lot of times people mistook them for sticks laying on the ground. And, and when they would pick them up, they would be bitten and a lot of them died. That's what happened to Paul as he was gathering wood to burn on the shore after the shipwreck. There was a viper in the pile of limbs he picked up. And he was bitten, and they thought he was going to die, but he didn't. God spared his life. I would say this about all animals, but certainly I would say it about snakes. You build a fire, the snake is going to leave. They're going to flee. They're going to try to get away. They're going to try to escape. They're going to slither away from the fire because they don't want to be burned up. John asked them this question, Who warned you to flee God's judgment? 
In other words, why are you really here? The implication is very clear. It may be that some of these leaders were coming to let John baptize them as some form of spiritual fire insurance. They'd heard about the judgment coming and they didn't want to be a part of that. So they were hoping that maybe if they could maybe let John baptize them, that that would keep them from being judged. You know, people do that all the time. They really do. They want just enough of Jesus to keep them out of hell and just enough to get them into heaven. They're willing to let Jesus become the savior of their life to get their ticket punched. But there's no way that they would ever let Jesus be the Lord of their life. That was true of these Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't want to be judged. There was a confrontation. And John even speaks some words of condemnation beginning in verse 8. He says directly to them, Prove by the way you live that you have really turned from your sins and turned to God. In other words, show me some real repentance. Don't just say, We're safe, we're the descendants of Abraham. That proves nothing, John says. God can change these stones here into children of Abraham. You understand what he just said? God can, God can make him a people out of the rocks if he wants to. He goes on in verse 10 to say, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever your roots. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. In other words, you either bear some good fruit, some spiritual fruit, or be ready to face the coming judgment of God. Pretty scathing words. That's a turn or burn sermon. I can only imagine that they were boiling inside like a pressure cooker. Gritting their teeth, fire coming out of their eyes. If looks could have killed, John would have been dead. He spoke words of condemnation, but there's also some words of consolation here. Look at verse 11. He says, I baptize with water those who turn from their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Wow. I read the other day about a poor man that was always wanting to go on a cruise. It had been his long life, lifelong dream to go on a cruise. When he was young, he had seen the advertisement for a luxury cruise. And ever since that day, he had dreamed of spending a week on a large ocean liner, enjoying the fresh sea air and relaxing in luxury. So he saved his money for years and years, carefully counting all of his pennies, often sacrificing personal needs so that he could stretch his financial, financial resources just a little bit further. Finally, one day, that day came, when he saved enough money to be able to purchase himself a ticket. So he looked through all the brochures that he had and he picked out a cruise and uh, he bought himself a ticket. He, he just couldn't believe, he was beside himself. He couldn't believe that the day was finally there that he was going to get to go on the cruise. But there was a catch. There was a catch. You see, he knew that he couldn't afford all of those elegant meals that he saw portrayed in the brochure. 
So he planned to take his own food for the week. Now you got to keep in mind that this man was accustomed to moderation after years of living without. So he planned to take a single loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. And yes, you can imagine that after a week of eating dry peanut butter sandwiches, he was pretty sick of peanut butter. Well, sadly, it was only after the cruise had ended that he realized that all those delicious meals were included in the price of his ticket. <laughs> hey, you know, we laugh, but guess what? We Christians do the same thing. You think about it. Too many of us make the same mistake like the man eating peanut butter instead of steak and lobster. Too many of us don't realize what we receive when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't understand the benefits of God. Now I'll just tell you, the, the, the benefits of God are too many to count. But one of the greatest benefits of knowing Christ, and I want to camp out on this today, is that each of us are baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. The very moment that he saves us, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, John 14, 16 talks about this. Jesus said this. I didn't say it, Jesus did. I, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will never leave you. Did you see that? I'm going to ask him, the Father's going to give you another counselor who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. He says the world at large cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you do, Jesus said, because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, Jesus says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. After his ascension back into the heavens, Jesus came to dwell in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. He kept his promise. And every believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. Let me say it another way. We have Christ living in each of us if he is our Lord and Savior. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul said it this way. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. He's, he's writing to the church here. He's, he's speaking to Christians. He says you are controlled by the Spirit. Whose Spirit? God's Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living where? In you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them are not Christians at all. Did you see that? Since Christ lives within you, even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit, that inner man, that spiritual man is alive because you have been made right with God. So friends, it's clear every Christian has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you can't be saved. It's impossible. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 4, we're all one body. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. We're all one body. We have the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit resides in all of us. 
We have all been called to the same glorious future. Praise God, one day we're going to be in heaven with the Lord. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's not water baptism there. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there is only one God and Father who is over us all and in us all and living through us all. Guys, you only get baptized in the Holy Spirit one time. And that happens when you make the decision to accept and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no second blessing. There's no second baptism. You either get all of God or you have none of God. It's just that simple. And, and there's another very important benefit uh, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that is that you take on the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Let me say this to you. How God looks at you is very important. Because there's nothing when God looks at you that he doesn't see. You might, you might be able to disguise things or cover things up or mask things so others can't see what's really going inside of you. But I got news for you. God sees everything. It's very important that you take on the righteousness of Christ, and here's why. Look at Matthew 5.20. Jesus said it. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your, your good works, the way you live around people, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. If you are not better at being right with God and your neighbor than these Pharisees were, Jesus said, then you can't get into heaven either. Well, guess what? None of us can do that in our own strength, in our own ability. You want to know why? We're all sinners. We all sin against God. And unfortunately, sometimes we sin every day. None of us can stand justified in the presence of God in our unrighteousness. Listen, we need Jesus to make us right with God. We need him to give us his righteousness so that we can be made right with God. When you accept Christ, you take on his righteousness. It's like putting on his coat. You put on his righteousness and he makes us right with God. After that moment, God no longer sees you in your sinfulness. When he looks down from heaven, he sees you cloaked in the righteousness of his son and he accepts you. Paul wrote, one man's sin. We know that man to be Adam. And so death ruled all people because of that one man. But now those people who accept God's full grace and the great gift of being made right with him will surely have true life and rule through the one man we know to be Jesus Christ. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit, and two very important things happen to you in that moment. The first is Jesus comes to live in you through the person of the Holy Spirit, and second of all, he covers you with your, his righteousness so that you're made right with God. Praise the Lord that that happens. Praise the Lord. That, that's an act of God. It's not anything we did. Now, I want to take us back and focus this on uh, the baptism that John mentions here in this passage. I'm going to do my best to explain it. I don't want to lose you in any of this. I'm going to talk about some things that you just need to, to hear it and then forget it and don't worry about it anymore, okay? But then I'm going to give you some things that you need to really hear and not sleep through, okay? Amen. 
Amen, all right? Indirectly, John refers to a baptism that was required for all Gentiles who wanted or who desired to become a part of the Jewish faith. In other words, there was a baptism required for all Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. And that's how you became Jewish. You had to go through this rite of baptism. Don't worry about that one. Forget it. Okay? The, the next was a kind of baptism that John performed. It was a baptism of water that, that marked an outward profession of an inward repentance. In other words, if you were wanted to demonstrate that your heart was, was made ready to receive the king, then you would submit to John's baptism. It was a baptism before salvation. You can forget about that one too, okay? Because the Bible only teaches about baptism after salvation. Amen? On two accounts. In Acts 19.4, it says, Paul said, John's baptism was to demonstrate a desire to turn from sin and turn to God. John himself told the people to believe in Jesus or trust in Jesus, the one that John said would come later. Now we're going to look at the two you need to think about. We're going to look at the two that you need to be very concerned about. The third and the fourth baptism, they're the ones that actually belong to the Messiah, the, the king that God was sending, King Jesus. Very important. Again, John said, I baptize with water those who turn from their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John tells us that there are two very important ways that Jesus, the Messiah, would be far greater than him and both involved a baptism. The first is this. Jesus must baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's very clear. He promised he was going to do that. He began to keep that promise on the day of Pentecost and he continues to, to keep that promise every time that a lost person is saved by trusting in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said this. He said, some of us are Jews and some are Gentiles. He's speaking to a mixed crowd there. Some are slave and some are free. He pretty much covers the whole crowd. He says this, but we have all been baptized, notice that, into Christ's body by one spirit. What's that spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. And we have all received the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Folks, if, if the Holy Spirit is not living in you, then you're not saved. You're still separated from God. You're still living with a sin-stained soul inside of you. And you're lost. It's just that simple. If Christ is not in you, then you don't belong to God. And you've got a big problem. If that is your spiritual condition, then be warned. Please, be warned. I say that with as much tact and grace and compassion as I possibly can. Be warned that one day Jesus will follow that baptism of the Holy Spirit with a baptism of fire. And let me assure you that, that the baptism of fire has absolutely nothing to do with speaking in tongues. That's not the context here. It has everything to do with the judgment of God. Well, you go, Brother Randy, how do you know that? Well, that's a great question. You guys ask really good questions. <laughs> look, we're going to look at the verse before and the verse after 
verse 11. We're going to look at verse 10 and verse 12. Why do you need to do that? That helps you know the context. That way you're not proof testing things. That way you're not taking things out of context. You're, you're, you're interpret, interpreting things correctly. Look at verse 10. John says, even now the acts of God's judgment. Circle the word judgment. Is it not obvious that we're talking about judgment here? Even now the acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever your roots. I got some trees growing up on my septic mound that need to die because you don't want trees on a septic mound, amen? The best way to do that is take an ax and cut the roots and then they'll die and then you just drag them off. Anybody wants to come do that for me? Just let me know. I'll be glad to put you to work. No, I'm kidding. He says, yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the what? The fire. Why do you put them in the fire? To burn them up. To burn them up. God's not mad with the trees, but he just said if you don't bear fruit, there's no reason for you to be here. In verse 12, he goes on to say, he is ready to separate the chaff from the grain. We shift from a forest scene to a field scene. He's ready to separate the chaff from the grain because you don't want to eat chaff. When you, when you pour out your cereal, you want, you want grain to be in there, right? Not a bunch of trash. He's ready to separate the chaff from the grain with his winnowing fork. You ever watched them do that? They lay the, the, the plants out in an area and they trample over that for a period of time and that separates the grain from the stalks and from the husk. And then they, on a windy day, they throw it up in the air and it blows all the trash away and the grain, which is heavier, falls right back down. And then you got a pile of grain and you got a pile of trash, chaffed, stuff that's no good. He says after he has done that with his winnowing fork, then he will clean up the threshing area. Notice what he does, storing the grain in his barn. Why? Because he's going to eat that. But burning the chaff with a never-ending fire. Now, let's jump to, to the reality and the apple the application of this. One day God's going to gather the saved and they're going to be with him in heaven forever and ever. But there's a judgment day for all those who refuse to be saved. Matthew, 5, Matthew 25, Jesus said, these people will go off to be punished forever. Those who reject Christ will go off to be punished forever. But the good people, those that have been made right with God, that have taken on the righteousness of Christ, will live, will go to live forever. Again, that's God's words. That's not mine. And God didn't say that to be judgmental now. He said that to be redemptive. He said that to be gracious to you and compassionate to you. The warning is simply this. There is a baptism of judgment or, or fire coming for all those who reject Jesus Christ. Be warned that that's coming. Why does he warn you so that you don't, you're not caught by surprise? Be ready. The consolation here is that everyone who accepts Christ are immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit. Thus, you don't have to worry about future judgment. Wouldn't it be great not to have to worry about what's coming? 
Everybody's worried about Tuesday. Don't be worried about Tuesday. You better be thinking about God. You better be thinking about God. Look at, look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.14. These are words of consolation. Words that should bring you comfort and encouragement and peace and rest. The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, is God's guarantee that he will give us everything he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. This is just one more reason for us to praise our glorious God. Woo, I love that. God puts his Spirit in you as a guarantee that he's coming back for you. And you don't have to worry about what's coming later if he's in you. Trust me, if he's in you, it's because he's made you right. John 3.18, again, words of consolation, but also words of condemnation. He says, there's no judgment awaiting those who trust him. If you will put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no judgment in your future. But, those who do not trust in him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. You're already condemned. Your, your choice has already condemned you. Not to choose is to choose. If you're, you're waiting going, you know, and I know a lot of people are living their life like this. They, they go, you know, I know I need to do this, but I, I'm having fun doing what I'm doing. And, you know, one day I'll get around to it. Hello? It says you're already condemned because of your choice. Can I show you what that looks like? It's not a pretty picture, but I want to show it to you anyway. My dad taught me a lot by showing me the consequences of what bad choices would do. He said, son, if you do thus and so, this will happen. I've told you about the story where he said, if you touch that or that heater, it's going to burn you. It burned me once. He was right. My earthly father was right. My heavenly father is even more right. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I could spend hours here, but I won't. But I hope I spend enough time that you see what's coming. John was given a glimpse of what heaven was going to be like and what the future was going to be. And in that vision, he saw some things that he has written for us, written down on paper. He said, I saw a great white throne. You want to know what that is? That's where God sits. And I saw the one who was sitting on it. He said, the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. Now, let me just make this statement. If the earth and sky could not escape the presence of God, how do you ever think you will? You can't hide from God. I remember my dad getting on to me one day, and I thought, I'll run. And I took a few steps, and he said, go ahead. I'll be here when you get back. And I knew he would be. I had a curfew. I had to be home 
by 12 o'clock, and I came home one morning about 1 o'clock. Guess who was seated, sitting on the front steps? It was my mother. Not my dad, my mother. Ooh, yes. <laughs> there was no place to hide. Look at verse 12. He said, I saw the dead. Now, who's he talking about here? Not the physically dead. He's talking about the spiritually dead. Those who have sin still on their soul, they're unacceptable to God, they've never trusted Jesus, they're lost. I saw the dead, both great and small, those who are, are really uh, well known and those who nobody knows about, those who are rich and those who are poor, standing before God's throne. I can't imagine standing before God's throne. Not in this condition. He goes on to say, and the books were open. It's very likely that you have your own book. That your whole life is written in that book. From A to Z. Everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever thought. The reason why you did it. Everything. Things that you've probably forgotten yourself. They're recorded in your book. How would you like for me to stand in the pulpit and read your book? I don't want you reading mine. I'm being honest. I doubt very seriously that you would bring me your book to read. I don't want God reading that book either, especially on a day like this one we're talking about. And the books were open, including the book of life. Now, that's a very important book. I'll mention that in just a minute. And the dead were judged according to things written in the books, according to what they had done. In other words, you're going to be judged for everything you've ever done, both the good and the bad. Notice verse 13, the sea gave up the dead, the spiritually dead that were buried in the sea, and death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them. You know, everybody's coming back. There is a resurrection, folks, of the lost and you're going, to have, you're going to have that body restored so you can stand in judgment before God. That's what the scripture teaches here. And once that happens, it says in verse 14, and death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because there's no need for it anymore. Nobody else is going to die. Nobody else is going to be buried. This is judgment day. This is the big day. He says this is the second death. This is eternal death. This is eternal separation from God. This is eternal punishment. He calls it the lake of fire. He goes on to say, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Hmm. I was a welder for 12 years. I have scars on my arms and my chest and my legs where slag would fall down and we were doing nuclear welding and I was taught, you grit your teeth and you endure it. Don't break the ark because you mess up the wells when you do. So I have smelt my flesh burn. It is not a good smell. Hell Hell is another name for the word lake of fire. 
it's best been described, as I spoke just a minute ago, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. It is a place where you'll never find God. It is a place where nothing will bring you comfort. The fire is never quenched. You never burn up. You're in a fire uh, environment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I want you to know that hell was never created for any human being. It was always meant to be a place of judgment for fallen angels. Satan leads that group. And because he does, and because of who he was, he hated God, he hates you, who are the crowning act of God's creation. And Satan is going to do everything that he possibly can to drag as many of us human beings into hell with him as he possibly can. And if I understand Scripture to be correct, he's going to be very successful. In fact, the vast majority of humankind will wind up in hell, not in heaven. Not because it's God's desire for them to be in hell, but because of the choice that they make. I was reading a devotion the other day by Dr. Benny Tate, and he said, if God is blessing, the enemy is messing. If God is blessing, the enemy is messing. You can rest assured if God is at work, so is the devil. He is busy. And listen to me. You don't want to spend eternity in hell with him. There's no need for it. God doesn't want you there. That's why God's made a way for you to join him in heaven. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus suffered your punishment on the cross. He literally went through your hell so you don't have to experience it. I love this verse. I, I hope you'll commit it to memory. I hope you'll share it with other people. It's the last verse I'm going to read. It's, it's a powerful verse. It says so much. It talks about the grace and the compassion and the mercy of Almighty God. It explains why he hasn't come back yet. You know, I, I've been praying for that to happen. Lord, maybe you need to come back before the election. That'd be all right. But look at what he says here. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return. Some people go, well, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. No, he hasn't come back because there's a reason. Look, he says, no, he is being patient for what? Your sake. Take that personal. It's meant to be. He's waiting on you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. Mm. Time is a gift from God. He is delaying to give you time to make a decision about where you want to spend eternity. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a Florida boy that God called to preach. I've never been one to see a lot of, in fact, I don't know that I've ever seen an angel. I've never had God speak to me verbally. But about three, maybe four times in my life, I believe that God has sent me a dream. I hadn't even thought about that till this morning. 
But as I got up this morning and was going back over my message, God reminded me of a dream that he gave me many years ago that was a part of God helping me to surrender to the ministry. I woke up in that dream, not literally, but it was like I woke up, I was in a little house, I stepped out on the front porch, and the sky was on fire. And there were, and it was almost like bombs had fallen from the sky, and there was patches of fire burning all around for as far as I could see. The earth was parched, no green, nothing green, all burned black or burning. And there were people running to and fro like crazy. And I'm standing on the porch thinking, oh, I, I need to grab one and tell them about the Lord. And, and it was like all of a sudden God said, it's too late. I woke up that morning in a cold sweat. Burdened to tell people about Jesus. Why? Because for so many it is too late. There are so many people today that are dying without Christ in their heart. They've still got sin on their soul. They're not ready to meet God. And if we don't tell them, they're going to one day wind up in hell and that is not God's first choice. I want you to realize that when John spoke, he didn't just speak to the common people of that day. He spoke to the religious people. Did you get that? Not only are there lost people outside, there are lost people inside. There are people here this morning that are not ready to meet Jesus. You don't need to meet him on the day when he baptizes with fire. You need to meet him on a day like today when he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean that. I, I, I just want to kind of close this message this way. And I don't have the book, but if, if I could bring the book of life in here this morning, the book that has every name of every believer who has ever trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Your name is written in that book. If, if I could open up that book today, would your name be in it? Do you know that your name is in that book? Do you have a piece about that? Or do you have a big question mark? I can tell you this, if I wasn't sure, I'd be sure. We're worried about what's going to happen on Tuesday. We may not get to Tuesday. You may not see the sun go down. But if Jesus is in, in your heart, and he's the Lord of your life, and you've taken on his righteousness, and because of him, God has accepted you, it doesn't matter if we see the sun go down. Amen?
So I challenge you this morning. If you've never made Jesus Lord and Savior, not just Savior, don't just settle for fire insurance because there is no such thing. Settle for his lordship over your life. I told a nine-year-old the other day what it meant for Jesus to be Lord. It means you give him your life. And that nine-year-old said, okay. I said, are you sure? Yeah. That's why the Bible says unless we come with childlike faith, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If a child will say yes, and we won't, we've got a problem. Huge opportunity. You can be saved and not have to worry about that future judgment. Or you can leave the way you came and not sleep tonight. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to make my prayer very simple because, Lord, I, I believe with all my heart you've been here this morning and you've moved. And if people are going to respond, they're going to respond. If they're not, they're not. So I just trust you. I want you to be glorified. I want you to be honored. God, I want your will to be done. This is not about me. It's about you and it's about what you're doing among the people of this world. And God, I thank you so much that you're still in the saving business. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus will forgive and save and justify any person today that will trust him as their Lord and Savior. So, Lord, right now, do your work. Thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you come if God's led your heart to do so? If you need Jesus in your heart, if you need to be sure that you're saved, if you need to know the Lord, you come. We'll help you. You come.